It's time to ignite your soul and unlock your full potential. Join us on Beneath the Helmet, the podcast exploring firefighters' health and wellness. Hosted by retired fire chief Arjuna George, our podcast is the perfect place to start your journey towards becoming the best version of yourself. So come on, let's join the conversation and find out what sets your soul on fire. All right, welcome back to this is a special edition Beneath the Helmet being released on September 11th, 2023. <clears throat> Today's episode is a very special one, means a lot to me. I got a chance to, to sit down with the photographer of this incredible book, They Saved New York, The Men and Women of the FDNY. So Glenn Usden was the photographer of this book. Uh, took some incredible images of FDNY members from uh, the war years right up until modern day. I have two guests on the show today, uh, Glenn Usden and Bobby Sen. They both go into a lot of detail about their experiences through September 11th, uh, their challenges since September 11th, 2001, and how important this book was to both of these people's lives. Glenn was a professional photographer, basically a family member of the FDNY, and documented decades of historic photos of the men and women of FDNY, as well as many fire scenes and uh, historic moments through time. Bobby Sen was in one of the World Trade Centers during the collapse. He tells his story about um, the horrific day, how it impacted him, and how he's moving forward in life today. It's a very powerful episode. It's over two hours long, so feel free to pause and come back to it, replay it, or binge it like I did a few times. Once again, a very powerful episode, pretty incredible stories that are still very near and dear to my heart. We went down as a group from Salt Spring Fire in 2001 to pay our respects to the firefighters. And our time there was essentially assisting FDNY uh, and attending as many services as possible. We also went down again in September 2002 on the one year anniversary. And once again, we assisted with going to as many services as possible. This book is incredible. It captures the faces of so many iconic FDNY people, um, tells their stories. Very powerful book. Um, it's almost 300 pages. It has decades and decades of photography in it and truly a special historic um, book that will be in the hands of firefighters for decades for sure. So I feel very honored to be able to sit down with Glenn and Bobby tonight, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did, and pay our respects to the 343 firefighters that died on September 11th, 2001, and also the close to another 343 who have passed away up until now due to uh, cancers and other job-related uh, injuries and diseases as a result of the collapses of the World Trade Center and September 11th, 2001. I hope I have a chance to head down to New York City and connect with both Glenn and Bobby and uh, share a cold one at Suspenders in the near future. So until next time, stay well, enjoy this episode. All right, welcome back to Beneath the Helmet podcast show. Very, very special show. This is being released on September 11th, 
And in honor of the firefighters, the men and women of the FDNY, we have a very special guest today. We got Glenn and we got Bobby Sen here with us today. We're gonna dive into a bit of this book, which is They Saved New York, The Men and Women of the FDNY. Uh, simply a stunning, incredible coffee book table, uh, packed with 291 pages, which is pretty impressive, and over 45 years of photography captured in this incredible book. So both Bobby and Glenn, welcome to the show, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, share your stories with us, but also uh, in honor of September 11th, the brave men and women of the FDNY. So Glenn, maybe I could get you to start. Maybe just tell us a little bit about who Glenn is and kind of your background and what brought you to being on this podcast today. Well, I began, um, uh, the earliest memory from maybe three or four years old was my parents taking me to the uh, firehouse in Brooklyn where Ladder 147 on Cortelia Road right off of uh, uh, Foster um, and that was 1959 or 60. And I can honestly say uh, I can trace my entire life back to that one moment to uh, be on the uh, front bumper of uh, 147's uh, truck. Mm -hmm. And uh, I uh, grew up uh, in the suburbs of New York City, about uh, 20, 30 minutes from the uh, city line. And uh, I was just totally obsessed with everything firefighting. And um, I was in a town called Massapequa, which is a fairly large suburb of, uh, of New York, uh, maybe what bobby 15 20 minutes away from bobby and yep. um as soon as i could um and i can tell you the date it was july 1st 1974 uh i was sworn in as a member of the massapequa fire department which is a um a fairly large uh, volunteer fire department and on unlike most of the rest of the united states uh the suburbs of new york have some really robust volunteer fire departments at that time we had about 300 members i think now they're probably around 200 225 but uh, it was a town of around 90,000 people, and it was it was quite busy. Uh, but uh, unbeknownst to me at the beginning of my fire service uh, uh, journey, just uh, west of Massapequa, was, of course, New York City. And in the uh, late 1960s through the 1980s, New York City went through a period called the war years. And the fire service has never seen anything before that or since that. And I would sit in my room when I was a... Uh, 16, 17, 18 years old, and I would listen on a little tunable um, uh, Radio Shack uh, radio, and I would listen to the companies being dispatched in New York City, and um, you would you would hear sometimes 10, 15, 20 working fires a night in New York City. Uh, some of the companies were going to three, four, five, eight, ten fires a night. At each company, it was just it was bedlam. The the you may have heard the expression the Bronx is burning. But it wasn't just the Bronx. It was it was Queens. It was Brooklyn. It was Manhattan. It was the Bronx. Pretty much Staten Island was exempt from that. And um, fires that today in New York would be a third or fourth or fifth alarm with 150, 200 firefighters and 20 or 30 units. Back then in the, in the late 60s and 70s, they could they could just find four or five units, three engines and two trucks or four engines and a truck. And they these these firefighters would. And back then they were all men. But these men would just put these fires out and um, go back to the firehouse and have a quick bite to eat and go go off to another one. It was a it was an incredible period, and um, my my just absolutely dear friend Dennis Smith wrote about this and he wrote a book called Report from Engine Company Eighty Two, 
And, and I, along with millions of others around the, the world, actually, can remember the, the first moment that they dove into Dennis Smith's book. And I was sitting in, in, in um, my porch in, in Massapequa in my home. My parents gave it to me, and I was just hooked. And all I wanted to do at that point in life was to become a New York City firefighter. Um, unfortunately for me, um, I flubbed it and didn't get on. Um, but uh, I maintained a, an absolute love of, of FDNY and um, had numerous friends in the volunteer fire department that were um, New York City firefighters. And I spent as much time as I could. Uh, actually, the, the chief of my volunteer fire department was a chauffeur of a ladder 124, tower ladder 124 uh, on the job. It's known as the Tonka truck um, in Bushwick. And back then in the 70s, the Bushwick, Bushwick was burning also. Bushwick was home to uh, two and three story uh, wood frame attached homes. And uh, they were just, they were getting fires all the time. So uh, I was, I was the unofficial mascot of uh, ladder 124. And I was always there with my camera. And um, it was just, it was quite a, it was just quite a time to be around the FDNY. And uh, fast forward that uh, to a number of years, I became the publisher of fire engineering magazine in the eighties, did that for six or seven years. And um I had all the, the time that I was spending, uh, we called buffing. I don't know if uh, what the term in, in Canada is, but the people who just go to fires and, and, and observe and take pictures. And I would, uh, I, along with sometimes 10, 20 others, would uh, sit um, in, the, uh, in the plaza across from uh, 82 and 31 in the, in the South Bronx on Intervale Avenue. And we would wait for them to get a run. And then there'd be a parade of five or six cars and we would follow them to the boxes and Sometimes it would be a job. Sometimes it would be a you know a ten nine two a false alarm, but all those years that I did that, I never actually got to see Dennis Smith. Just either he wasn't working the nights I was there or the days I was there, but just that was Dennis Smith was like like the 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 holy grail. Well, I, when I became the uh, uh, publisher of Fire Engineering in the uh, mid eighties, we were introduced at a trade show, and if you've ever met Dennis Smith. Um, he's short little guy. You would, you know, I had him as this six foot four, you know, towering icon. And he's a short, he was a short uh, little man. And um, you would meet him and you would think he was a, a Wall Street broker or a, a, uh, a writer, which of course he was, but you would, you would not think that he was, you know, a firefighter in one of the toughest companies in, in the history of firefighting. And uh, the day we met and he, uh, and I told him all the stories about how I used to sit, hang out outside the firehouse. And he, he paused for a second and he looked at me and he said, Glenn, why didn't you just come inside? <laughs> I had no answer for him. I was like, I was so ashamed. He said, you know, you could have come in and we would have given you a cup of coffee and you could have, you know, got a tour. And until I did this book, I never was inside the 82 and 31's firehouse. Wow. So um, the next thing that, that Dennis said with a gleam in his eyes, and, and he was the most proud Irishman in the world. And he, he said, well, Glenn, he goes, you know, we've got 110,000 subscribers and you only have 30,000. And I was like, thank you, Dennis. Um, but uh, the, the friendship developed and uh, he eventually sold Firehouse Magazine and we still stayed in touch. And um, he was extremely supportive of my photography. And uh, he wrote a number of books. And I see on the, on the shelf behind you, um, I, I as far as I, I, my biased opinion, I think his is the most um, credible and well-researched history of uh, uh, what happened on uh, on September 11th, uh, report from Ground Zero. And uh, maybe about 10 years ago, uh, and, and again, we were in touch all the time. And about 10 years ago, 
he was telling me on a regular basis, I went to this guy's funeral, or I went to this guy's funeral, or this guy from, from 82 just died. And after hearing eight or 10, and he was just incredibly sad going to these funerals. And I said, Dennis, I said, you know, we need to capture these people. We need to grab these people and capture their stories and their likenesses. And I said, what do you think about that? And he said, wow, great idea. Within 15 minutes, I got an email from him of about uh, 15 names and phone numbers and said, here's the first group of people to, uh, to approach. And I was very busy with my uh, fire truck company. I own a company in the States here that, that buys and sells used fire trucks and um, my, my kids. And I was just busy with life. And um, uh, I didn't do anything to it. And then three years ago, after talking to Dennis again, we talked not weekly, every other week or so for years and another 10 or 15 or more funerals of the, of the guys he worked with. I said, Dennis, it's time to do it. And he said, whatever you need, let's do it. We're in. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just, uh, it was at that point, um, it was in, it was during COVID. It was pretty much the end of 2020. And, um, I said, we're going to do it. And Dennis gave me an updated list of people. And in the spring of 2021, I started planning photo shoots and uh, I just, there's a gentleman who's become one of my closest friends and, and Bobby knows him well now to also Dan Potter, who is a retired firefighter from FDNY, who also has an incredibly compelling story about 9-11. Um, I'll give you the 30 second summary. Um, he was uh, off, off duty that day. Uh, he was uh, about to attend a training class uh, for promotion in the, in the Staten Island when the uh, towers uh, were struck. He immediately uh, turned around and drove from Staten Island and arrived um, at uh, at the site uh, a few minutes before the first tower came down. Um, his wife was working in the 85th floor of the first tower that was struck. Uh, the first plane hit about 20 feet over her head, um, a floor and a half above where she was. She um, remarkably got out right away. Um, he was downstairs. He was on the ground when the towers came down. He dove under under rigs and and into stores and and just had a, again remarkable um, remarkably that he wasn't he wasn't killed, and they spent the rest of the day uh, walking around the site, each not knowing if the other was alive. And um, finally, late in the afternoon, um, there was a, a very famous picture, and it's in the book of Dan Potter sitting uh, on a park bench. Um, a photographer named Matt Moyer took this picture of him, and he's got his head in his hands, and he's just. He thought he's, you know, he's certain that his wife is gone. She's in barefoot, um, walking around the site, going up to every fireman that she could see. Do you know where my husband is? Do you know where my husband? And finally, late in the afternoon, uh, somebody said, yeah, I know. I saw your husband. He's alive. And uh, they, uh, through, through channels connected, and, and somebody said to her, just go to the Chinatown firehouse and wait there. And then somebody got a hold of Dan and sent him there. And they, they got, got uh, together. And as you'll you'll hear from uh, Bobby's story, there's there was just it was um, it was just amazing that people were next to each other and the guy next to you died and you lived and it was just it's just it was just an unbelievable um, event and uh, for those of us who are from the New York area and again you know Bobby lived through it I was I was you know two hours away though I spent about three weeks there uh, the following for the following week through through the end of uh, October. But it's this is an event that has just um, for the rest of the country and, and Bobby and I were talking about this today. 
for us, it's this is our lives, our friends. Uh, I, I lost 32 people who I knew from the volunteer fire service or FDNY that day. Bobby probably lost more. I mean, it's just it, it's just unspeakable what we saw, the, the tragedies. And, um, uh, you know, for the rest of the country, you know, it's 9-11. It's, you know, it's a bad day. But, you know, for everybody, anybody who was um, either there or associated with FDNY, it was just more than a bad day. So uh, Dan Potter and I, um, we hooked up and uh, we said we're going to do the book. And uh, I, I was in charge of taking the photographs. Dan wrote the, the biographies. We have 90 people in the book, um, 88 of them are uh, are or were New York City firefighters. Um, another uh, person in the book is my friend Warren Fuchs, who was probably the most famous dispatcher in the history of uh, the New York City Fire Department. And he dispatched um, in Brooklyn during the war years. And the last subject um, is a family friend of mine, Marion Fontana. And uh, Marion's husband, Dave, was assigned to Squad One in Brooklyn. And that was uh, September 11th was their wedding anniversary. And uh, he had worked the night tour. He was getting off work at 9 a.m. She went to the firehouse um, to meet him. And they were going to spend the day celebrating their anniversary. And, uh, of course, just a few minutes before 9 a.m., uh, the call came in. And he just said to her, hey, I got to run. I got to go. And he never came back. So um, that's that's she's the last subject in the uh, profile in the book. So that's that's my story. Um, the. Uh, the the photo shoots for the book were just they ranged from high emotion to uh, just the same as as uh, sitting around the, the kitchen table at the firehouse. The the, the photo shoot where uh, where I shot Bobby, um, we had Chief Tommy Richardson, who had just retired as the chief of department. Uh, we had our friend Michael Milner. Uh, we had a, another uh, friend of, of mine, uh, Connor McCaffrey, who's a young firefighter in uh, Engine Company 54 in Manhattan. And the four of us, and Dan and myself and my assistant, and uh, I had another friend, a battalion chief from here in Pennsylvania with me. And um, I just, it was just one of the best days of my life. I wish we could have had a video of, of how fun it was to, to get together and, you know, all that shared um, uh, cathartic uh, experience of, of everything. And, and um, it was just, uh, so that this book has been incredible and it took two years to get done. I, I did it the last, I finished the last uh, shoot uh, in um, September of last year. Uh, I shot uh, Lee Ielpi, who lost his his son on 9-11, and Garrett Lingren, who's a, a, a rescue uh, three firefighter from the Bronx. And uh, that was the last shoot. And then Dan and I spent uh, about five months wrapping it up, doing all the photos, putting the pictures together, the stories, getting it edited and getting the book designed. And um, we finally got uh, finished copies in uh, August and the rest is now the book is out there. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Beautiful. <laughs> and I, I need to say one more thing. Um, Bobby and I had never met to that photo shoot yet. We just became fast friends on Facebook and our political beliefs are about as 180 degrees as part as you can get. And if the man called me up at two o'clock in the morning and said, Hey, I got a stomach ache, come bring me a cup of coffee. I get in a car, drive 200 miles and give him a cup of coffee. Awesome. So that's that's the bonds that that uh, um, I think there's just I, I don't want to cry, but there's just something special about uh, everybody who's involved in that book. And I think we all kind of feel the same way. It was a, it was like one of those once in a lifetime project. People have asked me if I'm going to do a sequel. And uh, my honest answer is I probably have another book in me, but I'm not going to do this again because you just can't uh, repeat uh, um, something like that. So that's yeah, I imagine. Story. Yeah, I imagine it's a pretty emotional uh 
period journey writing this book, right? There's a lot of people on a lot of motion, a lot of lost lives, a lot of pain. Yeah, it can't be an easy book to craft, but on the flip side, very rewarding, I would assume at the same time. Yeah, I, I can't. And, you know, it, and it's funny because I know that the, your um, expertise in the fire service and Bobby and I have, have for, you know, last two years have been chatting about mental health. And today we had an amazing conversation about it. And um, it took a lot out of me. I can say that this this book, um, there was a, another incident, which I, I you can't measure which is more important than the other. But there was another incident that the public probably just doesn't know anything about called Black Sunday. Um, where there were two separate fires, one fire in the Bronx and one in Brooklyn, where there were multiple um, firefighter fatalities that day. And um, meeting Jeff and Eugene, who were two of the firefighters who were trapped and and um, lived, and hearing their stories and and holding Jeff's coat and and rope and holding Eugene's helmet. Um, it just it it both it's the most enriching period of my life and also took a lot out of me um and um people have asked me often they said well can you give me a tagline for the for the book and i yeah it's pretty simple this is a book about men and women who run into burning buildings for a living so and then the rejoinder to that is and some of them don't come home beautiful i i have to say this is one of the most uh stunning books i've ever looked at in my entire life um obviously the fire service is pretty near and dear to my heart as well and just seeing the the quality of photography and i'm also a photographer as well um but just the the grand scale of this book is just it's just it's one of a kind so one of a kind so congratulations uh, on a very well done book um yeah it's going to be in the history books and uh it's going to be part of fdny history i'd imagine from this point moving forward so well, um, there's a couple of people that I dedicate um, the book to in the front, and um, I would really do anything if Dennis Smith could have seen the book. You know, it's just he yeah. died. I didn't say that. He died um, a week before I was going to shoot him. He died of COVID. And um, he was just so supportive. And, um, you know, he died. You know, I mean, literally, I was going to Florida to shoot him, Lee, and Garrett, and he up and died. And the week before he died, I spoke to him. And he, he sounded a little weak. He'd had he'd had uh, heart issues for a couple of years, but you know it's like oh no I'll be okay I'll be okay. And you know the week before when I was going to see him in January last year he died. So if if there's anybody who I wish could have seen the book it would have been Dennis. But that's just the way it is. You know it's that's yep. uh, Bobby and I have talked to it a number of times. You know this is this is the life you've been given and you can either um, screw it up or you can keep on going. So we choose to keep on going. I'm sure he knows how much it means to you. So, yeah, I loved how you tipped the hat to him and uh, just kind of the real story that was behind that in the book. Uh, so for the readers who purchase this down the road, it's definitely some very inspiring stories and some, some ones that will pull your heartstrings for sure. Thank you. Bobby, tell us a little bit about who Bobby is. Uh, before, I, before I get into that, it's just a, uh, if I don't pay homage to, to Glenn and to Dan, um, I'm not, I'm not doing my job. Um, as, as Glenn said, we barely knew each other and, and met through social media and, and some of my experiences and we crossed paths that way. Um, 
through whether you call it, you know, divine intervention or dumb Irish luck, um, we cross paths and I'm, you know, thankful for that. Um, I did laugh, but you know, the political thing, I, I, uh, you know, it's the kitchen table in a firehouse is about as, um, oddly opinionated in every different direction as you could imagine as, as well as, you know, but the general public doesn't know, but, um, you know, you meet people, whether you're sitting at the kitchen table or how I met Glenn or how I, and how I met Dan. I mean, Dan and I are both on the job, but we never met each other through the job. It was afterwards. Um, and with regard to his, uh, his photo that is in the book of him sitting on the bench, um, up until I sat down with Dan and was doing the interview for the narrative for my, you know, two pages in the book, um, I had no idea who that guy was. And when he told me that it was like, wow, you're the guy. Um, and most of us, I, I will say almost everybody on this job, um, you never want to be like the guy, you know, identified that way. You just want to do your job, do your thing and be respected by coworkers and, and by others and go home, um, in one piece. Um, but I have to say the first thing I said, because I didn't proofread anything, I uh, did my interview, did the, uh, photographs with Glenn, went home. Um, never asked to see anything. I wanted it to be a surprise. Um, and then the book finally showed up at the door and I felt like a little kid on Christmas when I, I realized when I saw who it was from and I was, I just, I was standing at the door and I said, holy shit, it's here. And I just grabbed it, opened it up. And then I looked for my name and then I'm looking. And then as I'm like looking for my name, I'm seeing literally the legends of the FDNY from back in the sixties forward, um, and immediately humbled to be included. And Glenn will tell you, I, I said to him over the phone within a day or two of getting it, I was like, you know, seeing guys from those war years and, you know, legends in the fire service that, you know, I always looked at the FDNY. It was like getting to play major league baseball and then getting to work in the busiest companies or getting the, you know, getting to go to special operations and work in a rescue company, that's getting to play for the Yankees. You know, I always looked at it that way. And the first thing I said to Glenn was, man, I have no business being in this book. Um, and he just kind of laughed it off, but that's really how, how I, how I still feel. And I'm, you know, I've been getting phone calls from friends who are in there saying like, it's unbelievable that you're, you're, you're part of this project and to get, you know, coupled up with some of the names that are in there. Tommy Richardson, chief of department, probably, uh, you know, uh, I'll steal Glenn's words, um, probably the greatest chief of department we've had in, in decades. I mean, just such a gentleman, um, truly cared about every single person on the job. He'd stop and talk to everybody and he never took his rank as anything more than, you know, it's his job to represent the fire department. And then another guy who was just like him. You know, again, going back two decades and we lost on September 11th was Pete Gancy, who was the chief of the department then. Um, and when you met Pete Gancy, he would just say, you know, and you said, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a plumber. Uh, you know, I'm a mailman. I work for, uh, you know, I'm an accountant. Pete Gancy was the chief of the New York City Fire Department. And he would just say, I'm a fireman in New York City. Like he never took his rank and ran with it, you know, and, and like, and, and, and those guys, like, the respect I have for them and to be put into a book with, you know, on the same pages as, uh, as Tom Richardson and, and the other gentlemen that are in there back from those years where, you know, 
I couldn't even imagine what it was like to work for the fire department then. Um, it, it's humbled. Um, and, I, and I don't use that word freely. Um, I am truly humbled and honored that Glenn thought that, you know, my experience and my story of September 11th needed to be documented. And he wanted me to, you know, be part of, you know, something he's been working on since, since the 60s. Um, and all I can say to him is thank you for that. Um, and I know he'll, he'll go, ah, because that's who he is. Um, but he and Dan are probably two of the most grounded men I've ever met in my life. You know, and no matter how, this book could sell 20 million copies, Glenn will always be Glenn. You know, and my, my new exposure to Dan is, I just know Dan's just going to be that testament to the job. Who's just going to go, yeah. And he has, he has a, a great gift for writing, you know, and to be able to paint some pictures for people. Um, and again, I, it's a gift. So I needed to say that. Yeah. Uh, and I'll just kind of add in there. I, I think this book also, I think that's what made it extra special when I was going through it was that it wasn't just the iconic heroes from the war years. It was also almost up to today or in the last 10, 10 years. And I think that kind of made a well rounded book in my opinion. So I think you definitely deserve a spot there and you have an amazing story to share. So uh, I, I understand where you're coming from, but I also, yeah. I, I truly, I truly believe your story was meant to be shared there. Well, thank you. Thank you. And it's, uh, it's an honor to be, you know, with, with you and, you know, share airtime with, with Glenn tonight. Awesome. Um, so I, my, my fire department journey started as the, uh, knucklehead little kid chasing fire trucks around the neighborhood. Um, I grew up about, we'll make it about 15 miles Northwest of where Glenn grew up in Massapequa. And I grew up in a town called Hicksville, which is actually a legitimate town because people laugh when they meet me and they go, where are you from? And I said, Hicksville, New York. And, you know, they think it's a bunch of farms and guys walking around with hay seeds in their mouth and we all wear no shirts and, uh, and you know, and suspenders. <laughs> uh, so grew up in a town, which is actually pretty busy now. Uh, daytime population in my town is probably over a million with the um, transit hubs. You know, there's a major train station that comes right through the center of the island, goes through here. Uh, buses, shopping malls, um, pretty large school system. Uh, but it's a you know, typical middle-class suburban town. A lot of cops and firemen live here. Uh, a lot of cops and firemen live in Massapequa. So pretty much the same, just a little, you know, certain differences, but in general the same. But I used to chase the volunteer fire department trucks around the neighborhood when they were around. Uh, and graduated high school, was going to college locally, joined a volunteer fire department, met some great guys who were on the job and immediately were like, you will take the test. Uh, I took the test in 1987. Uh, and then a couple of hiring freezes here and there later due to budgets and whatnot. Um, got my letter on December 23rd of 1993, great Christmas gift, uh, and sworn in the second week of January of 1994. Um, signed to a, uh, probably the biggest firehouse in the city in terms of what goes on there. Um, uh, we're right around the block. I'm on, uh, engine 207, ladder 110. Uh, the 301 Battalion and the 11th Division is also in quarters with us. Uh, nicknamed the House of Bells because of how they would dispatch us out. Um, the house cumulatively adding, you know, adding everybody up, the divisions runs, the battalions runs, the engine and the truck, um, probably almost 10,000 runs a year for the house. Um, but a um, little bit of everything in terms of our response area. Uh, we had some high rise. They had redone 
you know, low now in 2023, downtown Brooklyn looks like lower Manhattan. Um, but it was slowly being converted. A lot of housing projects, um, you name it. We have everything in town uh, in our response area, including one private dwelling, um, which was up in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and it was the um, the admiral's quarters. So luckily that didn't burn down because then we would have had no private dwellings. <laughs> um, spent from beginning of to the end of my career, unfortunately, short-circuited due to, um, which we'll sure we'll get into uh, between the physical and emotional aspects of what happened to me post-September 11th. Um, I retired in October of 2007. Um, really tough leaving. Uh, uh, fought to stay for a while. Um, and then after a couple of meetings and getting called down to headquarters, stop fighting this. Um, uh, it was time to go. Uh, not what I wanted, not what I planned. And uh, it was really tough to get adjusted to, which again, comes into the firefighter mental health thing, whether you're in the firehouse or out of it. Uh, but that really, really took a toll on me. It took me about 18 months to um, start to feel any level of normalcy again. Was that, and that's just with being out of the job. Um, but with regard to sep uh, September 11th, uh, that's what put me on the path to retirement. Uh, I was working that morning. Um, I had some things go on and I had taken a, a long-term detail assignment transfer up to uh, driving the battalion chief for quite a while. Um, and again, another thing about, you know, our mental health is I had some uh, family health issues going on at home um, and a little bit more expanded that just didn't tell anybody at work about, wasn't any, you know, didn't feel comfortable, you know, saying that. Had some scares with my wife, had some scares with um, some other family members. And uh, it just worked to be driving the chief and have a little bit more flexibility with uh, schedule and switching off my shifts. Um, had I been working in the engine company that morning, um, the senior guy in the engine was working. So I would not have been, I would not have been driving because it was a chauffeur uh, or an engineer as they would call it on the West Coast. Uh, so I wound up uh, driving the chief, working that day. Everybody in the engine company was killed except the chauffeur, um, the division chief, and a number of the uh, surplus officers. Uh, some of them, you know, again, legendary fire officers who would have would have been in this would have been in this book for Glenn, uh, Timmy Stackpole, who had a uh, horrible, horrible uh, incident where a number of two firefighters were killed. And he was burned up pretty bad. It was, he had just come back to work after surviving horrible burn injuries. Uh, and then Dennis Frost, who was another legendary um, fire officer, he was covering the division and uh, as the acting deputy chief for the night before, and he was killed. Um, so totally, we lost, in total, we lost seven, seven guys out of my house who drove out the front door that morning. Um, we had had a couple of um, deaths in the firehouse. One was um, Kevin Kane, who was killed in 1991. He was a probie who was killed um, in a building fire. And uh, the guys who were, you know, his contemporaries, they were struggling healing from that. And uh, almost to the 10th anniversary uh, was September 11th. Kevin was killed on September 13th of 1991. 
And usually you do masses and things like that for, you know, remembering for 10 years is the, was the custom. And uh, they were talking about not doing it again the following year. And then 9-11 happens and we lose seven guys and we just, you know, it just carried on and went forward. Uh, we had lost a couple of guys off duty, one guy in a uh, scuba diving accident. Uh, another gentleman before I had gotten the fire was killed in a motorcycle accident. We had a lieutenant named Wayne Smith who was in Lana 110. He was promoted to captain and he was killed, uh, I believe it was uh, May of 1994. He was killed in an apartment fire um, in one of his first assignments in Ladder 136 in Queens. So unfortunately, our firehouse was uh, no stranger to death. Um, but now looking back, you know, I'm, in January, I'd have 30 years on the job if I was still working. And um, I look back and I realize a lot of the things that went on with the guys in the firehouse and, you know, how they behaved and why they were so intense and why they did the things they did and acted how they did was because um, none of them really were taught to take care of themselves emotionally and how to get through and start to, you know, start to live again with your job. And uh, I could see it in those guys' eyes that they were pretty banged up. But I see it, I see it now as opposed to I didn't see it then when I was a young 25-year-old kid in the firehouse. You know, just wondering, like, wait, some of these guys are, like, not very nice, um, pretty grouchy, you know. And then I started putting math together after 9-11 going, yeah, now I know why I'm pretty angry. Now I know why I'm pretty grouchy and not taking care of myself. Um, but, you know, the magnitude of losing seven guys versus one guy, um, I'll just say it just affected, it uh, magnified the numbness of what was going on at that, you know, that time. Well, I, uh, I had written a small piece about my experience and was fortunate enough to publish it in a uh, mental health journal. And I'll be glad to, I'll forward you one. Um, and um, I did it for a couple of reasons. One, it was like, you know, A, so people kept saying, no, the historical aspect, which is what, one of the things I immediately upon opening the book, you know, that Glenn and Dan have, done, have put together, I was just like, yeah, this is history and it needs to be documented because it's once these guys pass away and once you're gone, your story is gone. And unless you put it down on paper, uh, it, maybe it'll get transcribed to somebody else or told to somebody else, but things change and facts change. And, you know, he climbed a ladder that was a hundred feet and when it was really 20 feet. And, um, so having the, uh, the ability to write I just sat in front of my computer and pounded away on coffee and just documented the entire event from start to finish, including the emotional recovery. And I, I, I have to say my, my plan, haha, was to document so that for the historical aspect of it, and then what really took off was the emotional end of it that more people wanted to know about, like, how did you go back to work? How were you able to muster up strength to just go, okay, I'll just go back and keep doing this. Um, and I didn't have an answer for them. And I, I, you just did, you did everything that needed to be done. Um, everything was about the families of those we lost. Everything was about, you know, getting the job back up on its feet. Um, and I still to this day, how that was done is a miracle, how the job recovered. And, um, 
how they maintain posture as the biggest and best and strongest fire department in the world um, is still baffling because so many people were so beat up so very badly. Um, and the, you know, the proverbial, you know, pull up your bootstraps and go thing that, um, you really had to dig deep. You had to pull up, you know, from underneath your feet some days to just stand up and go, all right, I have to put my uniform on again and go to another funeral and stand there and do this because it's the right thing to do. And anybody right. who tells you different is probably, you know, either maintaining their machismo or lying to you because there's a lot of days you just were like, I, I don't know if I can do this again. You know, I went to three or four in one day, two at one church. We just stayed there. First funeral came in, you know, you went through the routine, um, which unfortunately from the time I got on the job to September 11th, we had had, and, and Glenn will vouch for this, an inordinate amount of line of duty deaths that were multiple line of duty deaths where two or three guys were killed. Um, some of them within weeks or days of each other. Uh, and it was just nonstop. And somebody made like a half-assed joke in the firehouse one day um, about their uniform being worn out. And if I was to show you my uniform, it's actually worn out like at the seams from putting it on so often. Because you, know? you went to, you know, on average, everybody, everybody went to, you know, probably over 100 funerals because you were either at a funeral, down at the trade centers digging and looking, you know, for those who were lost or you were working. And the work schedule, because we were so shorthanded, you were doing 48-hour shifts and sometimes even longer, um, which was unheard of on our job and, and relatively impossible. And how we got through that period without losing other firefighters, just because the training routines were off, the in-house training and the, the fraternalization of like, know your job, know where to go, know what to do, know what tools to take. Um, that was kind of shot. We lost, you know, probably two full years of probies coming in that really didn't get the fair shake of the, the training that they deserved being in-house and learning the job and how we didn't have somebody hurt or killed just from lack of experiences was, you know, again, miracle, absolute miracle. Um, it's, it was a very, very surreal time, uh, especially yeah. the 18, 18 and 24 months, just numb, just completely numb. And the affect it's had on guys, um, I said it to Glenn earlier on the phone was, uh, I know guys that it's still September 12th for them. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're definitely not living and thriving. Um, they're just, you know pushing along. And it's, uh, it's sad. It's unfortunate. A lot of divorce, a lot of alcoholism, um, a number of suicides. And it's, um, the recovery from the job for the job in all aspects, um, junior guys becoming senior guys overnight. You know, I had eight years on the job on September 11th. And then all of a sudden guys are doing this and doing that. And you just start getting responsibilities. You go, all right, I'll do that. Meanwhile, you would never be asked to do some of the things. The senior guys took care of it. And then those guys got beat up so bad over the next 18 months of being in the firehouse, a lot of senior guys retired. So then we lost that experience too. Which makes this book even more important. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. What, a, what an incredible story. So I have something to, to add to Bobby's story. So remember yeah, a few minutes please. ago? He said that uh, he doesn't know why he's in the book. I rest my case. 
Yes, 100%. And, and I felt that as well. As soon as I read that, I was like, yeah, this is an incredible story. And actually, I was telling my wife this, this evening that I had your page flagged with a couple of sticky notes because I wanted to reach out to you. And then lo and behold, we connect tonight on this podcast. So, yeah, no, no coincidences. Yeah, no <laughs> coincidence. Well, that's uh, quite the story. I know, uh, I think both of you said this, that, you know, being in New York City, being an FDNY firefighter, whole different ball game. Um, but I know up in Canada and probably the rest of the world, we were feeling the pain. We were mourning. We were, we were right by your side. So just want to let you know and we, that. We know that. Yeah. Because one thing that uh, guys would just show up to the firehouse from, um, you know, we had guys from Toronto just show up to the front door of the firehouse, ironically, on, on one of the days we were having a funeral for one of our guys. Um, uh, a few miles away in, you know, in another part of Brooklyn. And these guys were like, what can we do? Mm-hmm. And we literally just said to these guys, we need you to go to funerals. We need, but we need people to show up in uniform and represent because everybody was either, as I said, working or in downtown or taking care of a family. Yeah. Uh, and if it wasn't for, you know, and I say that I, I, I've, you know, been fortunate to travel all over the country and and speak about and in and parts of Canada as well and, and speak to different agencies and groups and corporations about you know the commitment that was made during and after that day that um if it wasn't for firefighters coming in from all over the country um it would have been a lot more difficult for our, for us because you know you guys get you guys gave us a push just showing up and just putting your hand on our back you know our shoulder on going you know, hey, we feel you, brother. We get, we we get this. Um, and that just made you stand up and go, all right. If these guys are here, I got to stand up. I can't sit here and feel bad for myself. Um, and I stood shoulder to shoulder with volunteers from Long Island, to paid guys from California, Washington State, Chicago. I had business cards from firemen in my my dress cap. They're probably about that thick. Of guys like, hey, reach out to me when you know when things quiet down. Um, and, and I, and I did, and I have friends in California from the South Bay area that I am, you know, best friends with now. Yeah. Well, we went down as a group from our fire department and we went down in October, uh, still smoke and everything at ground zero. And it was still very evident that what just happened and, uh, yeah, exactly what you just said, Bobby, we were told to just go and support the, uh, the funerals and, and be attend as many as we could. I can't recall how many, but I'm thinking at least a dozen that we attended. Uh, we were there for maybe five days or something like that. And uh, the only two things I have from that is Salvatore Calibro is one that we went to. Mm-hmm. And also Robert Nagel, um, yep. two, two firefighters that um, it's the only pamphlets I have from them. But yeah, that was that was our job. And that was so honoring to be in that position, to be able to do that for you. I was uh, doing a, a, a class for uh, at the fire academy in LA City. Um, I, I, I don't remember exactly when it was, what month, uh, but it was within uh, within eighteen months after uh, after the um, after the site had closed in May of two thousand two. It was probably a year and a half after that. And uh, one of the guys said, "Hey, you know, our fire stations across the street, and this guy's on duty. Come over and say hi to them." 
And I walked in the front door and went up into their kitchen and the guy hands me a cup of coffee and I look to my right and the gentleman I was speaking of before we lost him were having his funeral. Four guys from that station were at the, our funeral for our guy where, and I gave that guy's eulogy and the guy goes, I remember you. I mean, so it was mind blowing. Yeah. Every firehouse I've gone into, the, the, there's a poster of all the guys who were lost or some sort of tribute, you know, on the rig. And I, I can be anywhere and, and it puts a lump in my throat. And I see that because I guess, you know, now it's 22 years later right. and, you know, it's still being acknowledged. Mm -hmm. But as, as Glenn said, and it, it's a key thing is the further you get away from New York, the more of a reminder it is when something comes up or the anniversary comes and go, oh yeah, September 11th, that was a terrible time. Um, if, if Dan was on, he'd say the same thing as, as I'm about to say, um, there is not a day and it's not an exaggeration or, or being dramatic. There is not a day that goes by that either an airplane going overhead, um, seeing, uh, you know, uh, some rig go by no matter where I am on the Island, um, whether a rig goes by, if I happen to be in the city and, you know, the memorializations on the side of it, um, I just saw on the news tonight that two people still yet to be the names were released were identified by DNA within the last two days. Oh, wow. Lost. Wow. It's just, it's a constant. So as, as I've said that, you know, September 11th is, we don't need it. I don't need it. My reminder comes every single day in one way or another. And, I, and I'm sure it hits Glenn too, whether he's in the car, here's a song, thinks of somebody, you know, and you just sit there and I, in all honesty, I still shake my head in disbelief some days this far away from it, just going like, man, I went to the fire department with this idea of what I wanted to do and what my hope was going to be over a 20 to 30 year career. And it literally crushed everybody's intentions uh, and what their plan was. Yeah. It just destroyed them, you know, because you didn't know what to do, how to do it when to do it, um, the guilt about pushing forward and doing something. I had thought about transferring out of my firehouse to try to get a, a fresh start and jump start, And my, my guilt kept me there, you know? And, you know, I talk to guys in the military quite often and they say, yeah, the best thing would have been for you is to, if they had pulled you out of there and just said, nope, you don't work there anymore. You're going somewhere else. Um, Cause then you're forced to jumpstart your career over again and not be stuck. Literally a locker on the left of mine and on the right of mine, both those guys were killed. Yeah. And for weeks I heard the guys, the alarm on his watch going off in his, in his locker, you know, and if that doesn't blow your mind apart, nothing though. No. That messes with you big time. Yeah. Amongst the, yeah, I, I, I could sit here for now or just about the, the trigger points and things that would just set you off, you know, and make me just like completely break down. Yeah. Thankfully, you know. To, uh, 20 years of therapist and, um, you know, continually focusing on taking care of myself and making myself be a better person, um, in terms of my function. Um, I, I, if I hadn't done any of that, I, I'd be in big trouble. I'd, I'd be dead, uh, you know, plain, plain and simple. I'd be dead. I probably would have either drank myself to death or the guilt would have just got me to one point And I just would have just said, I'm, I'm done. Very interested to 
kind of sort of off topic, but the new recruits, cadets coming in, what are they learning about September 11th? So a brand new firefighter recruit that joins today, what are they learning about 9-11? There's a lot of physical items that are at, uh, at the fire academy. Um, things made of steel, the chin-up bar, the pull-up the pull bar is made of steel from the World Trade Center. Um, there's, you know, flagpoles and memorials and things all over. And there's a huge area dedicated um, for A, line of duty deaths, and B, there's a whole wall dedicated to September 11th, which is pictures of all these guys staring at you when you, when you walk in there. And it's, again, a huge lump in your throat immediately, remembering, you know, the hundred or so guys that I knew personally. and um, as for, like, is there anything that they're learning in terms of, um, like, is it part of a curriculum? Yeah, I actually just, don't. Just the history, I, uh, the history, because I'm, I'm assuming that this generation that's either here now or coming t- into the fire service was not born in 2001. Yeah. Let me, uh, Bobby. Um, yeah, I can tell you that they bring every probie class down to the memorial and uh, they, they, they do a little service. Every probie class does that. So that, that is in addition to what, uh, what, what Bobby said, when you're, when you're at, uh, in New York, they call the, the Academy, the rock, when you're at the rock, there's reminders all the time. Um, but when you, when every probe class goes down and, uh, has a, a ceremony at the, at the memorial, if, if you, if, if you haven't been to the nine 11 museum, you have to go. But, uh, when you go there, there's both the museum on the inside, and then there's the outside, the reflecting pool and, um, Every probate class goes down there and uh, every firefighter um, learns what happened. So it is it uh, the, the one thing and um, for, from being not a member, but being really close with FDNY for a long time, like as Bobby mentioned, since the late 60s, early 70s, the one thing that I think it's kind of it's not the only department, but separates FDNY from the rest is the tradition and what Bobby talked about about senior guys, there is there is a, a and 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 Bobby and I are both friends with Frank Lieb, who's a assistant chief in the fire department now. And uh, there is a thing called the FDNY way, and there is just um, the brotherhood and sisterhood is is a it's not uh, it's not a term or a word that they fling about. And and Bobby mentioned it. Probably a lot of people are aware of it, but when when. The 343 were lost. They assigned firefighters to every single family. And um, and just you want to talk about the mental health aspect of of basically being taken out of the firehouse and just said, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna be the liaison from the, the fire department to your family. And you know, they just they 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 became the surrogate fire, the surrogate dad, surrogate um uh care caregiver for for the family. So FDNY um, never forgets, and that history—that's one of the things that that I I hoped, and I know Dan and I wanted to convey in the book. I think we did it, but uh, the, the 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 brotherhood and the sisterhood in the FDNY—it's it's not a word; it's a it's a way of life. Beautiful, yeah. So it should be. It was uh, the title was family liaison, an instantly created title, and um, it was. Um, there was a discussion we were having in the kitchen. Once we realized that the guys we sent out the door, that seven of them weren't coming back, we knew that we had to assign people um, to them. And you went from, you know, I'm working Friday night, Saturday day, I'm working Tuesday night and Wednesday day to, 
um, you were driving kids that are going, you know, are they going to, are they going to find my dad? Like you're taking that kid to soccer and you're cutting their lawn, you know, and you're sitting in the kitchen with a wife who is, has, you know, they understand what, you know, their husband did for a living, but they're still sitting there you know, with a thousand yard stare going like, well, what do you mean they have to find him? You know, and what do you mean there's a chance they're not going to recover anything? Um, you know, you became soccer coach, landscaper, uh, taxi driver, therapist, um, overnight. And I, I, I will say from experience with that, that, um, did definitely did not make the journey through the emotional recovery any easier. You know, if anything, that exacerbated the, uh, the survivor guilt, uh, tenfold. Interesting. I had it from, you know, I saw so many guys that morning working that morning, um, who ultimately were killed. Some of them standing right next to me. Um, and then, you know, you're left to tell their story, you know, you're left to tell the last moments of their life or what they were doing. And, um, you know, the, why isn't this me thing? Why am I not 344? Um, and, and there's no, bottom line is there's no answer to it, you know, and that, that was a lot of hours in the therapist's chair, um, asking why, 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 why? Um, and I'll tell you right now, 22 years later, there is no answer as to why it just happened that way. Um, I, uh, un unfortunately, um, I had the, uh, the blessing and the curse of standing next to Michael judge, the department chaplain, you know, during the collapse. And that man who has helped heal thousands of people and either join them in marriage, get them into recovery programs, um, help them with, you know, issues they're having with their kids and their lives. And just a man dedicated to the personnel of the fire department from the chief down to the new guy. And, you know, that guy gets killed standing right next to me. And, you know, the dumb Irish kid from Hicksville, Long Island gets to go home and he doesn't. You know, that why, that why was a huge why for a very long time. And I mean, I, I tracked down family and friends of his and, um, other members of the clergy that were really tight with him. And I needed to learn a lot more about him and, and pick their brain as to like, why am I here? And I will tell you a lot of those, uh, clergy members, um, they gave me the riot act. Some of them, they said, uh, Michael judge will not rest until you're okay with the fact that you're still here. And that it was his go. Um, that was a very difficult, difficult thing to swallow and, okay. and come, to, uh, come to, to justify as being okay. Well, I know when I watched that 9-11 documentary that those two French uh, photographers did. I'm not sure. I'm sure you're familiar with that. I'm, I'm actually in it. Oh. Um, oh, okay. I, I, well, I, when I walked into the lobby, when I finally got into the building and getting in the building was a task in itself from all, from the debris and people jumping. Um, it was hell trying to get in there. And once you got inside, it was actually a little bit more calm and quiet. And the first person I locked eyes on was one of those brothers. And all I said to myself like in the back of my head was, man, this guy's going to have some film by the end of today, not even thinking the magnitude of what was coming, but yeah, I was with my judge for, you know, quite a while. Cause I had gotten separated from everybody in my firehouse and, the chief of the command post, it was Chief Hayden at the time. He just looked at me and he was like, stay here till we find out where your guys went. I don't want you, I don't want guys roaming around. 
you know, because it's getting worse. And, uh, you know, within minutes, it got a lot worse. Yeah, I remember watching um, Father Judge and just that was that was the uh, definitely pulling at your heartstrings watching that unfold uh, with Father Judge. I just never met the guy. I have no idea about him, but there's some connection with him that uh, was pretty deep. So if he could have wore out the terrazzo floor in that lobby, uh, he would have because he kept his he ma he maintained his position in that part of the lobby and he just paced back and forth. He had his hands behind him and he was, you know. As I said, he was talking to his boss, <laughs> you know, doing his thing. And I, uh, as it says in the book, um, I did, you know, for a brief moment, sit there and go, I should go ask this guy to like, you know, give me the once over because, uh, this isn't good. This isn't good. I mean, I, I didn't forecast my own demise or any of that. It wasn't, but it was just a, a thing that hit me briefly going, I should probably ask you know, for one of those. And I started like kind of walking near him. Um, and, uh, he just kind of like, he looked at me, kind of gave me a little bit of a nod, had his lips in a very peculiar personal way. And he just went back to, um, you know, praying, as I said, talking to his, his boss. <laughs> and, uh, it was a very, uh, again, another, another piece of that, that crystal clear in my mind. I always say when people ask me about the day, I always say I have this vivid ability in my brain that I still see all of it. And I wish I could unplug it and just give it to you to plug in, you know, like a, you know, some sort of video that you could watch. But wouldn't, wouldn't wish the, you know, the fear and the horror and the terror that was going on in everybody's mind. Um, I can imagine. But uh, just for the, the function aspect. How did 9-11 and September 11th, 2001 affect both of you, uh, your mental health and your well-being? Obviously, it, it dramatically affected it. But what were some of the things that you noticed in yourself that changed on that faithful day? I'll let Glenn speak first. Well, it just, uh, I had, I'm going to tell you a story that it was, and again, if you weren't in the New York area, it just didn't affect you. But um, the cell phone service in the New York metro area was just about completely wiped out because of the the both the towers uh, had had a lot of it and also the unbelievable amount of uh, traffic and the all of my friends uh, that uh, were on the job the, the families couldn't call to into the city from Long Island and the people. At the at the site that were at at uh, the nine eleven at, at you know the World Trade Center couldn't call out to Long Island, but for some crazy odd technological reason, they could call me, and I could call them in in Brooklyn or Long Island. So I probably spent the vast majority of the evening relaying calls to people. Yeah, I did speak to this guy or spoke to this one. And unfortunately, one of the ones that I couldn't speak to because he died was my friend Dave Fontana, Marion's husband, and my brother, who was good friends with with uh, Dave and Marion, had said, "Can you, you know, make call and, and see if you can reach?" And no, we couldn't. We couldn't reach. But we were able to. We were able to. I was able to call um, people on Long Island, and they were able, and the, and the guys who were working at the site were able to call me. 
and they couldn't connect in the New York area. So um, I was able to be a, a bridge to a number of people um, and say, yeah, I did get a hold of so-and-so and, and they're okay and they'll call you tomorrow. Um, you know, that, that kind of stuff never, you know, never, it never leaves you. Okay. No but um, just, yeah, there were, I count 32 people that I knew generally through the volunteer fire service um, that, you know, didn't come home. Um, I was uh, uh, the fire chief here in uh, Lancaster Township, Pennsylvania at the time. And, and uh, my guys, it was just the afternoon, were constantly calling me like, hey, chief, we're going to get a couple, we're going to get some people together who want to go up there. And I said, oh, no, you're not. And uh, they're like, no, 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 we're going to help. I said, no, you're, they, they didn't, when, when, when FDNY calls from Lancaster Township Fire uh, to come, then we're going. Until that point, we're not, that's the last thing they need right now is, is um, thousands of people showing up. And there were a lot of people who showed up uh, that essentially self-dispatched. And most of them ended up doing good things. But uh, uh, just yesterday we were talking, um, I was with uh, Chief Richardson, Tommy Richardson, and uh, he was talking that um, the next morning it was it was an amazing scene and he didn't know how much, what it was going to be like. And he said it, it, it was rough, but it was organized chaos. Um, and I, I just uh, felt that our, the best thing we could do would be stand by and wait and see if they needed any help. And believe me, they didn't need anything from, from my fire department and, and uh, hundreds of others. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as, as Bobby mentioned uh, very eloquently, um, they didn't need us to go and fight fires. They needed us, you know, to support them uh, emotionally and, and, and bodies at funerals. And, and I actually took, um, I, I told you I'm in the used fire truck business. So I took two Mac pumpers that I had in my inventory and I brought, sent them into New York and had them lettered as FDNY. And uh, they went to, each of them went to, I don't know, 40, 50 funerals um, because it, uh, there's, there's a tra been a tradition in the fire service and especially FDNY for whatever, a hundred years that when somebody dies, you get uh, brought to your final resting place on a, on a uh, FDNY rig. Well, they lost so many rigs. They didn't have any rigs to send to funerals. So I, I took two of my pumpers and made them look like FDNY. And I took the hose beds out and put, put, uh, made, turned them into, to caisson, uh, vehicles. And they just, and I just handed them over to people on a job and just said, take them to funerals. So, you know, I kind of used my, what I had at, at my disposal to, you know, uh, help the best as I could. Um, the actual, um, I think, Bobby, you might correct me if I'm wrong. I think the volley companies were only in the city for less than 24 hours, but till the next morning, maybe. Um, they were in there for about 24 hours. Um, but I will say they, um, the volunteer fire departments did donate uh, a lot of their rigs to be used as caissons as well. Um, because the number, like, as you said, you know, as we said, the number of funerals. Um, but I just learned, I didn't, I didn't know you had sent those in. I'm just, I'm just learning that now. It's amazing. Yeah. I had a little bit of a dust up because the, uh, some of the people in the city, uh, the, the, the part that the, the backstory that a lot of people don't know about nine 11 is, um, there were not millions, billions of dollars spent on the recovery. And, um, because there was so much needed, I'm talking about cranes and construction equipment and lighting towers and, uh, air compressor trucks and just, um, there were, there were, there were so many people who ended up billing, uh, the city for millions, if not billions of dollars of supplies. And, um, uh, they, they, they realized very quickly into, I don't know, the second, third, fourth day 
that uh, they were going to need. And, un, you know, it was unprecedented. The, 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 the recovery effort at, at uh, um, as, as Bobby mentioned, went, went to, I think, June, right? It was May or June of 22, 20, 20, uh, like roughly right around Memorial, uh, Memorial Day. Right. right. So, so that, that recovery effort was just an unbelievable logistic and resource um, uh, outtaking, undertaking. And um, there were so many bills coming in and uh, they, the, somebody was certain that uh, I was going to build a city for these two rigs that were going to funerals. And I said, no, I said, I'm not going to build a city. This is, you know, it's a job I love. I wish I was on a job, but um, you, you just have them and use them. And, you know, I'm not going to bill you for anything. But um, I, I got a phone call one time from uh, uh, somebody who, Inspector General, um, and said, we want those rigs out of there. And I said, I don't know where they are. And they're like, what do you mean they're your rigs? I said, I dropped them off. I don't know where they are. And the guy's demanding that I get these rigs out of the city. And finally, I said to him, uh, am I one of your firefighters? He goes, no. I said, so you're the inspector general. I said, you've got no control over me, do you? And he goes, no. I said, well, then our conversation is complete. And uh, that was just, um, it was just kind of a funny side. But, you know, it was just, it just, um, I, I, you know, I, I can't, uh, I, th I think it's, it's difficult to not, um, like Bobby said, you just, it's something, it's just people, I think just, you know, as the anniversary approaches, um, I, I, even locally here, um, people ask me, you know, hey, if you'd like to come to this remembrance or do this, or maybe give a little, you know, a few words. And I've gotten, I, I've almost gotten to the point that, yeah, you know, I really don't. I just, I just would rather be quiet that day and remember the day and remember the people and remember the effect. And, and, you know, it's just, um, obviously the book has, um, taken Dan and I, and, and, you know, a lot of people know us now that didn't know us before, but, um, you know, it, it, it's just, you know, I, I wasn't a member and, and it, it stings and hurts like hell. So, um, you know, that, that's the thing. And, when you're when you live in the New York area, it's it's right there. I mean, it's right there every day. Um, you drive. I was in. I was up in New York yesterday doing a newspaper interview on on the book. And uh, you, every town you go through, there's a street, there's a plaza named after somebody. Um, it, it's just it's there. It's there all the time. I, I'm I'm obviously I'm in um, FDNY firehouses all the time now, and um, just about every quarters has a has a you know, something on the wall, um, for who was working that day that, that the, uh, the, 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 the board that you put in, you know, what the writing positions are and, you know, all those from nine 11 are all, you know, behind glass and, you know, uh, that, that the helmets or the coats of the, the people who were lost that day. So it, you know, it's, it, it was, um, it was the worst day for so many people. And yet as Bobby said, we're sitting here, you know, talking about it. So, you know, it can't be, you know, compared to, you know, the, those who aren't talking about it. And, and another hidden thing that, that, um, I don't think most of the country is aware of, but FDNY lost 343 firefighters that day. We're within probably what, one or two from that of losing since 9-11 for the 9-11 cancers. Very so, close. yep. I mean, you know, so, so you take 343 that were killed in, in minutes and then you got 340, I think, or 340 now, something like that. It was within one or two. Um, yeah, every time I get a number in my head, my phone will say that somebody else was. Right. You know, it's uh, almost one or two a week. 
some weeks that this one died from renal cancer or this one died from prostate cancer or this one you know died from emphysema or whatever and they that you know they're they're you know they're FDN they're 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 9/11 cancer losses and um I think I one of the things in just a really tough period um that that maybe Bobby can expand on but the 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 fire service in New York had to fight and I'm not talking like like lightly I'm talking they've had to fight the fire and police service for the Zadroga bill um comedian John Stewart this this guy who you know didn't doesn't know a fireman a thing um basically shamed uh Congress into um, passing it and then extending it and you know to this day I, I, right now there there's something called the 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 family transport foundation that has a fleet of uh of SUVs that are running around the New York metro area every damn day taking people to their chemotherapy uh treatments to their surgeries uh moving the, their wives and kids around so this is this is like you know to to the rest of the country it's you know it was not 911 it's 22 years ago you know, to to anybody in the New York area, it's no, it's it's still going on. It, it's going on today, um, and that is something that that I don't think I'm. There's a, um, I'm not going to say his name, but there's a guy in the book um, that that I photographed who's just the nicest, jolliest guy. Another guy, you know, that that was not a, he was a firefighter. He's not a big shot or legend, and he's got prostate cancer that was you know 9/11 related, and they're taking him around. And I think they think he's he's they caught it quick, but. Um, you know, it it's just it's it's it just never stops. Yeah, and that's a that's a hard thing to recover from if you're trying to, you know, your own well being and your your own mental health. If you're exposed to that day in and day out, it's a hard hard environment to heal in, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. How about you, Bobby? Nice um, thanks, Glenn. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just asked the question again, cause I, I got so caught up in what Glenn was saying. Yeah. I just want to make sure I answer you properly. <laughs> no, it was just along the facts of, you know, what, what did you notice in yourself, your own mental well-being, and your, your presence of who you are as a person after September 11th, 2001, what changed in yeah. you? Um, I would say first and foremost, my mortality, um, and there's like constantly, like, I can't go to a wedding, a funeral, uh, christening, a uh, big family gathering or some sort of event where I'm not for at least 30 seconds standing there going, wow, you know, odds should be saying I shouldn't be here for this. You know, I should be dead. Um, so it's one of those things like I always make a, you always made a concerted effort to show up for everything. Being in the fire department, I make it like even double effort now. Like if somebody's having a gathering or something, I'm like, yeah, I got to show up because you just don't, you know, and people say it all the time. Oh, you don't know when your last day is going to be. Um, I knew what my last day was. And for some reason, um, I got, I was allowed to stay um, because I, I should be dead. Um, where I was in the grand scheme of that and being, you know, in both buildings collapsing. Um, and then miraculously finding a path out with it, you know, some other guys and then realizing who was dead that was standing like literally right next to us. Um, that's a big mortality tickler. And you, I get reminded of that, you know, 
listen, I, I still get grouchy in traffic and I still get grouchy over nonsense, but I, um, I really appreciate my life and I am grateful for it. And, you know, meeting people or seeing things or like getting to watch, you know, my nephews, I'm really close with my nephews that are, uh, two of them are 11 and, uh, 11 and 12 and like every soccer game, if I'm not doing something, I'll be there. You know, um, if I have the opportunity to pick them up from school, I'm picking them up from school. Cause I just want to, you know, I'm getting time with them that I really, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be having. So, you know, I've been granted this, this gift. Um, so I'll say that's, that's the biggest change. Um, you know, some people like spirit, uh, people who are spiritual often say the, the phrase like, you know, we make plans and God laughs. Um, I had this plan. Like I had this thing in my head about what I wanted to do with my career and how I wanted it to go and where I wanted to be. And it all just completely, you know, dissolved. And anything that was like in any way, shape or form of doing that either brought on, as I mentioned earlier, a feeling of guilt, a feeling of like, should I stay here? Do I owe it to these, you know, do I owe it to stay in this firehouse for the rest of my life? Um, and a million things would go through my head. So that um, a lot of second guessing, which I wasn't, excuse me, a big second guesser. I was always second guessing everything. I, and I still do it to this day. Like I second guess everything I'm doing. You know, always wanted, you know, it's the do the right thing, do the right thing, do the right thing. Um, every time that I would go do a program about either just about the events of not the event of September 11th or, or speaking about emotional wellness and, and the recovery, emotional recovery and firefighter self-care and stuff like that. Um, I would take, uh, a stack, I, I carry them with me. I have a stack of memorial cards of, you know, with guys' pictures and their birth date and date of death. And, um, you know, my, like I said, a nice picture of them on there. And I, they, I carry those in my pocket every time I would go do something. Cause it was like, it's like owed it to them, you know, this is, I'm doing this for them, you know, and I'll say I care more about guys' feelings on the job now, as opposed to, you know, the attitude you were taught to just suck it up. You never went sick. You always, you know, you never got hurt. You know, if you were sick, you just worked. If you were hurt, you just worked. Um, you know, the, the fraternalization that would go on in the kitchen, I hope it still goes on, but there's also that other piece of, you know, if you knew somebody's banged up, it's definitely a responsibility to check in on them. You know, if somebody lost a, a parent or, you know, a brother or a sister, or they, you know, they, they find out that their wife is sick. Cause I, you know, I knew what that was like the day I got that message or phone call was like, oh God. Um, so I make more of a concerted effort to, uh, for lack of better words, be my brother's keeper now, as opposed to just do my job and, you know, let everybody else figure out their job. Um, those are probably the two paramount things that I'll say changed me. Um, I will say, you know, as Glenn referenced about, you know, people you knew and you realize, you know, so-and-so is gone and this guy that you worked with is gone. I, I, unfortunately, um, there were some guys I went to high school with who were working for Kenneth Fitzgerald on the 105th floor of the North Tower. Um, and they were killed. So like this reaches back to like, this goes back and touches literally when I was, you know, five and six years old, like running around the street with those guys. 
a uh, police officer who grew up across the street from me when we were kids. Walter Weaver was uh, from ESU Truck 3, and he was killed. And, you know, poof, I immediately, like, I start thinking about him or his mom or his family. And I, I still live in the neighborhood that I grew up in. You know, his street, you know, the block that he grew up on is now named after him. And I see it every day when I drive out to that, you know, leave my neighborhood going that way. Um, so for me, it's, it has touched every piece of my life from being a kid to guys I went to high school with, to getting on the job and guys who were in my academy class, to guys in my firehouse, to guys I played golf with, hockey with, worked on the side with, um, you know, guys who I was in the volunteer fire department with, um, you know, who were on, you know, on the job as well. It has bled into every single aspect of my life. You know, and I, I, like you always want something, you'd always like something cool to be, uh, you know, which is what's stamped next to your name, you know, when you, when you leave and you go, oh, you know, like, uh, that guy played for the Yankees or, uh, you know, oh, that guy hit a scratch off ticket for $10,000. You know, oh, he, that's the guy who had triplets. You know, you want to have something that's fun and exciting. Um, unfortunately, one of, one of the many stamps that will be next to my picture is, uh, that, you know, September 11th changed my entire life, every aspect of it, how I think about my health how I eat, you know, exercising, how much water I drink. I mean, stuff that I would have never thought about. Plus the touchy feely side of me now, which is, you know, as Glenn will tell you, I hug everybody. You know, first time I meet you and I'll meet you in person at some point, just expected like Bobby's going to hug you. Uh, good. You know, I used to make chiefs in the firehouse cringe because I'd walk up and give them a hug. And this one deputy chief would be like, Robert, please <laughs> let go of me. <laughs> You know, I'm like, nope, not letting go. You're giving you a big hug, Chief. Um, well, and you know what that's else how... is going to be next to your name? Yeah, there's going to be you're, no. You're a, you're a hero to all your brothers and sisters that are that you're taking care of right now. So that and is I, next I, to your name as well. Somebody said that to me. They were like, "Listen, dude, you could have went to ten thousand fires, and you wouldn't. You know, you'd never help as many people as you're helping now." Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so that's like the. Uh, the saving grace for me. Like I look at that and I go, okay, if, if that's why I'm still here, you know, I'm good with that. Yeah. Um, but that was, that was hard to swallow. And okay. I don't know if you know the name, um, the last name Vigiano. Um, John Vigiano is a, he's one of the Mickey Mantles of the FDNY. Yeah. Um, you know, just a legend, a, a very hardened Marine, um, went to 10,000 fires and, you know, very highly decorated man. Um, a great firefighter, great fire officer, and has taught thousands of guys how to stay alive and do their job better. I was at a wedding with him, standing in line to grab some food, and we were just chatting. And I asked him, I said, you know, Cap, how you feeling? And he was like, I'm doing okay. He said, uh, there's something that I realized recently is that more good than bad is going to come from September 11th. And I, it, it floored me because the man lost both of his sons, one a police officer and one a firefighter. Wow. And for him to say that, and I knew he wasn't being the tough guy or trying to like, you know, push through that because he had his arm around my shoulder that way. And it, it, it's a conversation that he and I had that I will hold on to for the rest of my life. So, and I was just like, I couldn't believe he said that, yeah. that more good things were going to come. I mean, he lost his two sons. 
Yeah. And again, he gave me strength to persevere and push forward and go, no, I, I, I got to keep take, trying to take care of guys and their families and make sure that, you know, that nobody goes through the hell that I went through because I didn't know what to do afterward. You know, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I was drinking 20 cups of coffee a day and nightmares and flashbacks and everything that you would find in the, you know, the guide to being messed up after something happened to you. Um, you know, I hit every checkoff box and then, you know, I realized I needed to do something with what happened to me and not just be a victim for the rest of my life. And, you know, this is the direction it's gone. And I'm, I'm, if that's my assignment, um, I, I, I accept it hundred percent and willingly. It's a very, uh, noble, noble position to be in. So, um, very curious about how the FDNY is in their mental health right now. Are they, is it, has it been a lot of change since September 11th, 2001, or is the, it still the, kind of progressing? Prior to September 11th, if you went to the counseling unit, there was an issue. And it was one of those things where everybody'd be going, oh, that guy's got this, that, you know, you were being sent to the farm if you had a drinking problem. Um, I, it wasn't something that I would say was publicized or made known enough through either the union or the medical office or, or even something that would be sent down on flyers where if you're having trouble um, and you need to talk to somebody, there's somebody there. I think after September 11th, it hit them hard and fast that they had um, a lot of broken toys on their hands and they had to do something about it. Um, I didn't go see somebody until May of 2003. So I, I lasted like a year and a half, you know, two, a little over two and a half years in the firehouse before, like I just, I had reached wit's end. Um, they were sending social workers to the firehouse to come and talk to everybody and see if anybody was, you know, struggling. But as, as Glenn has alluded to, um, the culture of the New York city fire department is, you know, you get assigned to your firehouse, you don't offer up what you want to have for lunch for a year and a half let alone you're going to go say that, you know, oh, I'm not really sleeping and I'm not really, I'm not really doing too well and I'm struggling and showing a weakness because the kitchen was a pretty, pretty vicious place and guys beat each other up fraternally. Um, and as you know, you know, some of it, you just, you know, most things, there was nothing that was off limits. <laughs> you know, it was either your hair, you know, the length of your fingers, you know, the clothes you would wear when you were off duty how you would say things, food you wouldn't eat, you, know, you would get chewed up pretty good. Nobody was going to turn around and say, I haven't slept in three days, you know, because the guy would look at you and be like, pardon my French, but he'd be like, fuck are you upset about, you're still alive. You know, those guys are dead, you know? So you weren't allowed to feel, you weren't allowed to be in pain. You weren't allowed to struggle. So my struggle had to be kind of in a chokehold while I was at work. And then I get home and it would hit me 10 times hard. Um, that I, I hope, and again, I, I'm retired 15 years now. So it's, um, it's one of those things that I, I don't know what their, you know, open door policy is. Um, I know they're a little bit more, uh, aware, I will say of that. If there is an event or an incident, you lose a child that, you know, bad car accident, multiple casualty incident, um, 
God forbid, a you know, line of duty death, they are sending counselors to the firehouse and they're really keeping an eye on guys, you know, and at least giving them some of the tools and the awareness that, hey, listen, you might not sleep and you might see the whole thing that happened a couple of hundred times and you might have nightmares. I didn't know that that was normal. I thought I was broken immediately and I was like, oh my God, my life is ruined. Now, I didn't sleep more than two to three hours for almost 10 years. Two to three hours in, at a clip and then I'm up. Hmm. And I would wake up, be fearful of having a, a nightmare or a flashback or something, and I would go make coffee. Okay, I'm up. And then you're doing that at work. You're definitely not on top of your game. And now I become more of a jeopardy and a more of a liability to the other guys that I'm working with. You know? So um, I'm, I'm, my hope is that if guys go through something that is upsetting to them for whatever degree of upsetment would be. Um, you know, again, we're in the fire department. Nobody calls us because their son got an A, you know, on a math test. They call us because their son is overdosing on heroin in the bedroom and go fix that. You know, they don't call us because they got a new lawnmower. They call us because dad's hand is stuck in the lawnmower. So we're not getting calls for good things. I mean, for the random childbirth that you would go to, um, which it was like a joyous event. Um, so my, my hope is that if guys are going through something that they know that there's an avenue for them to pursue. And I, I have heard guys who say, uh, my wife is sick and they've taken them off the chart and they're not working, you know, and they assign them to the counseling unit so the guy can take care of his family. Um, that was unheard of in the past. Guys would just cover for you. You know, if we work together and something happened with you and your family, it would be like, all right, we have to cover him, you know, so I'm going to work. He's, you know, he's got a 24 setter for Monday. I got it. You know, and then just go forward until, you know, you needed to come back. And that's still going on. But if there is something legitimate where somebody's in distress there, uh, there is help out there for them. Good stuff. And the counselors, I, I, I can't speak enough of them. And I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention his name. Uh, as a retired lieutenant from the, the FDNY who became a social worker. His name is Jer Jerry Moriarty. Um, so the good thing is that he spoke. He could speak to speak, and he also had walked the walk of being in the firehouse, and I didn't have to explain any of that to him. That makes uh, a that, big difference that, when they're culturally knowledgeable, yeah. right? Yeah. 100%. Mm -hmm. um, that means saved my life. Mm -hmm. You know, besides my wife and my family, you know, really embracing me, um, Jerry Moriarty saved my life because he taught me that it was okay to be broken and that it was also okay to heal. Mm -hmm. And that, that man has saved hundreds, hundreds of firemen's lives. Well, yeah. I'm sure Glenn and uh, I can speak for Glenn. We're both very happy you are here with us. Yep. 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 Not, not the day on the green side of the grass. It's a good you day. <laughs> well, since you guys are in a different time zone than me, you're probably starting to get a little tired. So I don't want to take you too into your bedtime. Um, but Glenn, I'd love to hear one big message that you want my listeners of beneath the helmet um to hear from you a message from you maybe from the book or whatever or personally that you'd like to leave our listeners with i'm going to tell you a story of somebody who's in the book and uh, it's my friend john burner and uh, he was a volunteer firefighter with me in mass Speaker fire department he got on the job and uh, 2001 was a rough year for the fdny and not just because of 9-11. On Father's Day, there was a uh, fire in a uh, hardware store in Queens. 
and um, John uh, was in squad 288. They were the first arriving company at this hardware store. And uh, he was on the top of the stairs uh, going into the basement where the, the building was on fire. And um, Brian Fahey and John Downing were in front of him. And um, the hardware store exploded. There was a, the fire was started by uh, gasoline that had been um, accidentally poured into the store by some kids. And um, those of us who have been in a lot of fires realize that when there's an explosion, sometimes it basically pushes in and then everything explodes out. And um, Brian, who I also knew from the volleys, Brian and uh, John um, got sucked into the basement and my friend John Berner got pushed out of the basement. And uh, another firefighter who uh, everybody in the, the job knows, uh, Harry Ford, uh, who was Superman, guy, another guy I knew from, from Long Island. Um, he got killed when the front, the facade, he got buried when the facade collapsed. And uh, uh, Brian and John were trapped in the basement. And um, John Berner, my, my friend, got pushed up. And he was literally on the stairs. The other two guys, particularly Brian, was right in front of him. And uh, that's, you know, when, when I hear Bobby tell the story about people that you're standing next to. And that's how random life can be. And the explosion pushed John out and Dennis out. And... John and Brian got pushed into the basement and the basement collapsed and um, they died. And it's that, um, what, uh, what I think what this project, what, what I wanted to do, and there's been, I don't know, Bobby, maybe you can back me up hundreds books about the FDNY over the years. But yeah. what Dan and I wanted to do with this book was to go not tell stories of big fires and not tell stories about fire trucks. And I sell fire trucks, so I love frigs. But we wanted to tell, uh, we wanted to get inside a little bit uh, everybody's head. We wanted to do a book for anybody who wants to be a firefighter, who is a firefighter, or who admires firefighters to learn and, and get an inside um, view of what, what makes these men and women tick and, and you know, their, their personal stories. What was their motivation to become a firefighter? What their life as a firefighter is like? and um, uh, really give uh, both visually and through Dan's words um, uh, a sense of 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 their self. And um, I can tell you that since the book came out, the actual uh, printed copies have been out for two or three weeks. I'm getting seven or ten love letters a day, and um, it's it's been overwhelming to the thanks and the kind words that you know my new buddy Bobby and you know, hundreds of others are saying about, you know, my father was on the job and you captured what he went through or you wrote my story so well. So it's, it is, I, I knew it was going to be a good book. I just didn't know that it was going to emotionally hit all the check marks and, and, and the response that it is. So I'm honored um, uh, beyond compare. I've, I've been taking pictures since 1972 and I know that I'll never take another picture in my life that is good as the 90, people that I photographed for this book. So um, I, I, the, the thank you that I have is for these wonderful men and women that participated in the project and the friends that I've made. And Bobby's just one of, you know, hundreds of people that, 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 you know, I've been introduced to and met and just are, are proud to tell their stories. So that's, that's it. That's, that's where I'm at today. Beautiful. And I, I think just going, going back to your story about the Father's Day fire, I uh, just, 
once again, an example of how precious life is, right? So kind of going back to how Bobby feels about every day as well. So, and, and I, I knew two of those guys pretty well. I knew, uh, Harry and, uh, Brian pretty well. And, uh, again, two outstanding, outstanding men in their field. I mean, ha Harry has, you know, said his nickname was Superman, um, a wealth of experience and knowledge. And as he was there, you just knew like, all right, we got, you know, the A team is here. Yeah. Yeah. And the vulnerability that was exposed for that fire, um, you know, somebody said it, not me, was that like the Father's Day fire because of the guys who were killed was like the cocktail hour for 9-11, you know, of looking, you know, the magnitude of, uh, of talent, you know, and, and, and skill set that guys had. Um, you know, losing those two guys just immediately opened up everybody's vulnerability to, wow, if those guys can get killed, None of us are safe from ever being in threat of dying in this business. Because if I had to pick guys that I would say top 10 list, uh, you know, Harry Ford would be on the top of that list of guys would be like, Harry will never get killed. He's just too good. He was so good at what he did. Hmm. He saw things, you know, 10 minutes before they were happening, he would see them. And then, poof, in an instant, you know, um, again, another day, I wish I, I wasn't working that day. I was home. I, uh, was coming back from uh being out with my wife we were at we had stopped at uh her dad's house for father's day and uh driving home my phone lit up it was like call me as soon as you get home walked in and called my friend and they start rifling off names you know and it was um just very eye-opening to that vulnerability but to you know to glenn's compliment to compliment him um I think his book is, it was something, you know, and take me out of it. I, even if I had just purchased it and I wasn't involved in it, um, it's something that every fireman will read or anybody associated with the fire service, even kids. Um, it, which is one thing I have found like wives and kids came up when I would, when I would, when I do programs about how we think and how we function and why our brains do what they do, um, as, as firefighters, I. I'm always drawn in by the uh, wives coming up to me saying, I've been married to my husband for 25 years and I now understand him because of how you explained it. Now, and Glenn's narrative, uh, Glenn's, uh, and somebody else said it the other day is, uh, Glenn was able to make a couple of really ugly guys look pretty good <laughs> in the book. Um, and, and Dan's words was, everybody's family, uh, the family members alone of guys who were in that book, are going to be grateful through eternity for them because they will capture a little bit of who their dad or their uncle or their grandfather or their cousin or their husband was or is back then through even like generations from now, you know, that my, my nephew's kids are going to look at this and go, wow, that was uncle Bob that you were talking about. And I'll be, you know, I'll be long gone, but they'll have that. And there's no greater gift to be able to do that. And I, I learned a little bit of that by, unfortunately, being part of a group of people now. I've met Pearl Harbor survivors who I can, I, I, I mean, there's not many of them left, but I met a bunch of them while I was there at Pearl Harbor. And they walked away from them, like talking to people to sit with me, to tell me what to expect in the future living as a survivor of something like that. You know, you're one of very few people to be alive you know, and great responsibility comes with it um, as well. You know, the honor and the privilege of being alive. 
Um, I met D-Day survivors that I sat in, and I'm in awe of telling me their story. And, and the one guy who I, was a girl I dated when I was in college, her grandfather was in the first wave at Normandy. And he rarely spoke about it, but I dropped off a memorial t-shirt for the guys we lost to him. Um, probably about six months after the 11th. And uh, he sat me down and said, welcome to the club of survivors. And again, you, you start to, things that hit you hard. Um, boy, that hit me. That was getting, that was a punch in the gut. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm in a group of people that survived a, a world renowned known event. And there's a responsibility that I have to maintain that comes along with that. So, um, I'll say for me, the message I would send is, um, it's okay to take care of yourself and it's okay to, to be broken and hurt and, and, and recover from that. Um, and it's okay to talk about it because that was a big thing. We never talked about it. It was a big, uh, I guess the fire service really took, a um, took a chapter of that from Vietnam veterans because most Vietnam vets that I met growing up, they won't talk about it, you know? And, uh, there were guys telling me, you need to talk about this. The world needs to know about what happened that day and the days after and what you guys did to, you know, to recover bodies and all of that madness. Um, and I would say the, the things I learned was, um, I'm stealing the title of uh, a friend of mine. It was a, um, clinical psychologist who helped me. He wrote a book that was called, it's okay not to be okay. Um, and I had to start living that. And I, cause I knew I wasn't okay and I had to accept it. So I would say for their, all the brother and sisters out there who are going to see something terrible, um, and go through something bad and carry that home. Um, don't shove that down inside. Cause as I said to, to Glenn doing that stuff, it's like, it's like chewing on razor blades. You know, it's going to cut you up and you're not even going to feel it until you're, you know, until you're drowning. And, uh, Way too many of us have taken our own lives. Way too many of us have been, are now divorced. Way too many of us are alcoholics or drug addicts and, um, and have taken on a punishment when it doesn't have to be. Now that would be my message. Wow. What a, what a powerful episode this has been. Uh, gentlemen, I beyond honored to, to sit with both of you and to have a copy of this, this book in my hands. That truly, you know, I, I, I truly feel that I've followed the events from September 11th and I've, you know, went down there twice and really felt like I kind of knew what was going on. But uh, my eyes have been opened dramatically since, well, reading this book, but also connecting with both of you tonight, uh, just how prevalent it is today. And it's not, it's not old news. It's not something that happened 22 years ago. It's still happening to the survivors and everyone who's living in the city itself as well. So just really appreciate your commitment to spreading the message and, uh, and sharing your time with us tonight. How can people get a hold of this incredible book? You can go to our website, which is www.theysavedny.com, or you could also uh, order it on Amazon. So um, uh, order it directly from us at www.theysavedny.com or click on Amazon and, and buy it there. Uh, just look it up in the search bar. 
but uh, and you, either either way you can you can get it and uh, it's also available from fire service publications online which is uh, probably the premier fire service uh, bookstore in the in the country for fire police and ems promotional books and whatnot so um either of those three ways uh, any of those three ways um you can get the book and um we greatly appreciate your interest in it excellent i uh, i would hope you get it at the museum as well is is that available there it is available at the fdny fire museum in lower manhattan Nice. And soon to be available at the uh, Fire Zone, which is the FDNY Fire Foundation um, uh, facility in uh, Rockefeller Center in Midtown Manhattan on West 48th Street. Great, great. Well, I hope I make it down to the Big Apple soon, and uh, maybe we can have a a beer, suspenders, and uh, and uh, hug you, Bobby. Give you say a big when. <laughs> Sounds yeah, good. Say when. Say Sounds when good. we'll be there. Sounds good. You don't need an uh, excuse from us to say hello. <laughs> but Kent, usually what happens when I, in the past, when I, and when I'm speak, you know, either speaking in person or, you know, doing something like this, um, I have kind of scratched some of the wounds that some of us suffer. Um, and I, it, it, I would, uh, I'm offering my email address up. Um, so it's, it's Bobby S F D N Y at gmail.com. It's Bobby S F D N Y at gmail.com. Um, if you're hurting or banged up and you just need a little guidance on, you know, a direction to go in to start taking a little bit better care of yourself and, you know, either pointing you towards some sort of therapist or, uh, just validating that it's okay. How are you feeling? Um, I, I welcome the email. So, um, don't, have to, yeah. And Bobby, you're doing speaking and presentations. Is there, uh, somewhere yep. they can find out more about that or? I'd be honest with you, 99% of it's been word of mouth. Um, and it's been like a lot of fire departments, police departments. Um, I've had the fortune of spending some time, um, with a bunch of Navy SEALs, uh, some retired military guys, um, a lot of narcotics officers who have gone through, you know, some crazy busts and whatnot, um, and events like that. So, but if there's an event, somebody's putting something together again, same email address, um, uh, I'd be, if uh, scheduling works out and, uh, you know, the logistics come together, um, that's kind of how we do it. I don't have a website up or anything like that. So okay. just kind of take it as it comes. Sounds good. Any final parting words, gentlemen? Just thank you very much. And Glenn, I love you, brother. Love it. Same here, my friend. Like I said, it's an honor. And um, I think uh, the, the most parting word that I have is that, the ability to tell other people's stories has been the honor of my life. And uh, Dan and I are just blown away by the response. And um, truly, this isn't about us. This is about them. And um, we're we're just the vessel to um, the media to, to do the story. So um, it, it's 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 just been an honor to tell other people's stories. And these are amazing stories. And um, we just uh, we thank everybody who has either been in the book or has purchased the book. But um, uh, I, from the time I was three or four, I knew that firefighters were the most special people in the world. And uh, after 49 years in the service, nothing has changed my belief that uh, we are the best people in the world. And, um, you know, I said to, to tell everybody's story has been been great. So thank you. Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, like uh, like you just said, Glenn, it's an honor. It's an honor for me to connect with both of you tonight. So 
thank you both. And uh, thanks for our listeners. This was a longer episode, but uh, very uh, compelling stories and emotions shared. So until next time, stay well. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Beneath the Helmet. We hope that this podcast has provided you with valuable insights into the world of firefighters' health and wellness. Remember, caring for your physical, mental, and spiritual well-being is crucial to achieving optimal performance. Join us next time on Beneath the Helmet for more inspiring conversations. Until then, stay well.